Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. You and I are 12 again, and the school year has just ended. It was long and torturous, filled with the awkward presence of impending change. You, like myself, won't see half of our friends this summer, forgetting them in the overwhelming high of summertime freedom, because we're going to camp. A few days pass, each feeling longer than the last. Our days still filled to the brim with new sensations of exploring our world, as it changes to mirror our own metamorphosis. It's a crescendo of youth. We don't know it yet, but we're racing towards adulthood, and every day, unbeknownst to us, is getting shorter and shorter. But we lay awake at night, wishing those days away frivolously, and anxiously waiting to leave our home for the first time, alone and on our way to camp. You come over early with your parents. They're hanging on to you like your feet are about to lift from the ground, like you might float away from them. Your mother's eyes are a little red and puffy, and my mother looks towards her knowingly. We don't know it, but they are consoling one another, lamenting the fact that their babies are growing up. The bus arrives, and you and I hear the other children on it, laughing and having fun. We instinctively go to run towards the sound, and in unison, we're both jerked back into synchronistic hugs from our mothers as they hold back their fears and in a low voice rattle off their list of warnings and concerns. Our fathers look towards one another, pretending they didn't tear up as well late last night after their families had gone to sleep. They feign a slight bit of indifference and roll their eyes with a slight smirk. But as that twist in the corner of their mouth fades and they're done shaking their heads, the crease in the middle of their brows betrays how they actually feel. It's hard for them watching us grow up. You pull away from your mom, and as you start to run away, your backpack full and ready for adventure, you yell back towards your parents that you love them, and they say it back as they watch you join the other children. The bus lunges forward as we introduce ourselves to the other children, all of us open to new people, new places, and new experiences, giddy with the anticipation of getting to camp. The suburban neighborhoods fade away, the noises of the city disappear like a forgotten memory, and the road becomes rough and bumpy. Corner stores, street signs, baseball diamonds, and farms all dissolve. We finally look up from our conversation with our new friends. Our familiar world is replaced with trees. Trees that threaten to swallow the one-lane road the bus is on into the thick underbrush. You and I are mesmerized as we look into the forest, past the trees that flit past us as we hurtle towards camp. It's midday now, and there isn't a single cloud to blot the sun, but not too far into that forest we see darkness. This world is hidden, and it's ours. But we're also afraid. 
Sound familiar? To some of you it might, but not all of us went to stay away camp when we were younger. I certainly didn't. But I think as children we all dreamt of adventure. We all dreamt of leaving our homes and discovering the world on our own terms. There is certainly freedom in leaving the bounds of our parental oversight, but there is also anxiety and fear. Is what you're being set free from a leash, or are you being cut loose from a parachute? But that's all part of the excitement we crave as children, all part of the fantasy of exploration filled with both danger and discovery. But I don't think any of us thought in earnest that if we left for camp, that tragically we might never return home. The summer of 1977 was about to begin, and with that the camp season. Camp Scott, a verdant, lush oasis for children seeking summertime refuge from their parents since 1928, was ready to open. The 410 wooded acres of Camp Scott could accommodate 30 staff members and 140 campers. A spinal road named Cookie Trail ran through the center of the camp, leading to 10 camp units scattered throughout the woods. There were 10 camping units. Within each of those, there was a counselor's tent and seven tents for campers, and each campsite was monikered with an indigenous tribal name. And on June 12, 1977, the next large group of preteen campers arrived at Camp Scott to fill the tents with laughter and run through the forest. But for three random campers, their three-week camping excursion would tragically end sooner than they anticipated. On that day, June 12, 1977, eight-year-old Lori Lee Farmer nine-year-old Michelle Heather Goose, and ten-year-old Doris Denise Milner all tore away from their apprehensive parents and happily got on the buses along with 137 other Girl Scout campers and made their way to Camp Scott. When the girls arrived, they were all gleefully assigned campsites and tents as usual, and Lori, Doris, and Michelle were assigned to Kiawa Campsite, Tent 8. There were 27 Girl Scouts in Kiawa, split between the seven tents. The seventh of those tents, placed in a semicircle, was opposite of the counselor's tent, making it the furthest away from the watchful eyes of their camp counselor. This was about 150 yards away, and hidden behind the boundless foliage of the forest. The trio was originally intended to be a quartet, as a fourth girl was supposed to be in their tent. Due to a clerical error, though, she had been misassigned. That fourth girl was supposed to be moving to Camp 7 that evening. But due to an impending thunderstorm, camp counselors decided to postpone the move, which unknowingly saved her life. At 7pm the night of June 12th, the storm arrived, raging outside as the girls were warm and happy acquainting themselves with the other campers over dinner in the dining tent. After eating, they, along with the other campers, returned to their tents to relax, and before bed, all the girls wrote letters to their families. Nine-year-old Michelle wrote, Dear Aunt Karen, How are you? I'm fine. 
I am writing from camp. We can't go outside because it is storming. Me and my tentmates are in the last tent in our unit. My tentmates are Doris Milner and Lori Farmer. My room is shades of purple. Love, Michelle. Lori wrote to her family as well, and in part she wrote, We're just getting ready to go to bed. It is 7.45. I couldn't wait to write. We're all writing letters now because there's nothing else to do. But it is Doris's letter that proved to be the most ominous. She wrote, I don't like camp. It's awful. Mom, I don't want to stay at camp for two weeks. I want to come home and see Casey and everybody. As the three girls, along with the rest of the campers, fell to sleep, and as the storm tried to tear loose the tops of trees, they were unaware that these letters would be the last that they'd ever write. If I should die before I wake, the Lord I pray my soul to take. Words that have been spoken, but weighed improperly by millions of children. How do you weigh the consequence of sleep? It's unavoidable. It whisks us from childhood to adolescence to adulthood. We go to bed assured in our safety, not fully comprehending this stasis as vulnerability and wake up the next day, one day older, over and over, until one day we wake up and we realize that we won't always wake up. There aren't a million more mornings to take for granted. Part of being alive, of being human, is not being able to determine the number of mornings we actually have, the time we have left. And some of us, Tragically, we'll have less than others, and there are a few whose lifetime of morning light will be snuffed out and annihilated far before their time. That night, while Camp Scott slept, it seemed the forest was alive with ill intent. At 1.30 a.m. that night, while the girls slept, Carla Wilhite, a university student working at the camp, heard what she described as a guttural moaning sound coming from the cross-section of trails leading to the showers. Carla got her flashlight out and with trepidation stepped out of her tent. She flicked the switch and turned her flashlight towards the woods. There were only trees swaying amidst the thunder and lightning. She swung her flashlight towards the campsite, shining it in and around the tents. Still, nothing suspicious. So she went to bed without alerting anyone. She later explained she thought it was just an animal, and if she had told her co-workers, they would be annoyed at having to walk all the way there through the suffocating darkness, and would not think that she was up to the job of being a camp counselor. That choice would haunt her for the rest of her life. Others at the campsite reported seeing a phantom flashlight bobbing and weaving its way through the woods, while others recalled hearing more moaning and groaning coming from the trees. At roughly 2 a.m., a girl in Kiowa campsite, Tent 6, 
lay awake as the tent flap opened and a figure with a flashlight stood in the entryway. The girl was one of four campers in that tent and the only one awake at the time. She watched silently as the figure stared down at the sleeping girls, regarding the group for a second and then closing the tent flap and walking away. The camper, confused and horrified, tried telling herself it was a counselor checking on them and just went back to sleep, once again without alerting anyone. Around 2.30am that night, a nearby landowner reported hearing an unusual amount of vehicle traffic on his remote road near the camp. Then, at 3am, a girl in the Cherokee campsite, which was separated from Kiowa by the Comanche camp, heard a scream. She checked her watch, and frightened, woke another of the campers in her tent to share her fear. They listened together for more noise, but heard nothing aside from the storm outside their tents, and went back to sleep. At roughly the same time, another girl from another campsite said she heard screams, and someone crying, Mama, Mama, Mama. Unsure of what to do, she did nothing and went back to sleep. Three hours passed and the events of the night became irrelevant to those involved. The reset button had been pressed when they went back to sleep and had woken up, safe and unperturbed by whatever paranoid delusions they might have had that night. Carla Wilhite, the camp counselor who had heard the guttural moaning noises, left her tent at 6am and started jogging the path towards the same crossroad that led to the camp showers, the same area where she'd heard the noises in the night. Under some trees that lined the trail, she saw three camping bags and thought they were misplaced luggage from the new campers, but as she walked towards them, she saw the body of 10-year-old Doris Denise Milner. Carla's blood-curdling screams alerted the other counselors to the horrifically brutal and gruesome scene. A crowd quickly gathered, seeing Doris. She was beaten, she was bound and bled, and partially nude. Camp staff were too fearful to open the other two sleeping bags, and police weren't even aware of the other two bodies until they arrived and a coroner opened them to find the other two girls. Investigators found both Lori and Michelle bound in a fetal position and wrapped in bloody bedsheets. Both girls had died of blunt force trauma to the back of their heads, seemingly while they slept inside their tent. Doris, however, detectives determined had been led away from the tent, still alive, and evidence showed that Doris was sexually assaulted and beaten so brutally in the face that indentations of the weapon remained on her face post-mortem. There was blood on the floor of her tent. This indicated that the girls were first attacked in the tent and then carried outside. Police found a large red flashlight with a single fingerprint on the lens, but unfortunately when they ran the fingerprint through any database they had available, Investigators found no matches. There was also a footprint left in the pool of blood in the tent. A male nine and a half size shoe. 
and rope, duct tape, and a long black hair were also discovered. We all grow up. That is, if we survive. There is no worse fate than for a parent to bury their own child and having to endure the emptiness and deafening silence that is left in the wake of that loss. Growing up is painful. It inevitably leaves us with cuts and bruises and scars, but that's just life. Without that pain and learning, we would take for granted the beautiful moments and quiet moments where we take in what it means to breathe and be alive. Lori, Doris, and Michelle's lives were cut short. Before they even knew what it meant to grow up, they didn't experience these pains. But this wasn't a mercy. Whoever took their lives amidst the excitement of exploring the world and the beauty of the woods, whoever annihilated their existence when they should have been learning to take risks and make friends, that person was truly a monster. Authorities began their emotional investigation surrounding the camp with emergency vehicles. Parents were also informed that something had gone wrong and that they'd have to pick their children up at the council building. Parents of all 140 children started panicking and drove to the camp, creating a mile-long line of cars wrapping around into the entrance trail. Some frantic parents were too impatient to wait at the council building and drove to the camp itself. They were turned away and forced to wait hours in the sun as the camp was in lockdown. Terrified parents watched the emergency personnel come and go and were not told of the status of their children. And the campers weren't told that three children were found dead. As counselors took the children on day activities, and as police investigated and cleaned up the scene. The camp eventually evacuated entirely, and campers were released to their guardians, with some of them being returned without their luggage, and all of them confused to why their camp trip was shut down. The investigation went into full swing as the camp cleared, and the following day, June 14, 1977, Detectives noted that the murderer had attempted to clean up the blood and had smeared it around in the process. The blood wasn't only on the floor, but also on the towels and mattresses. But who conducted this offense of nightmaric proportions? Police investigating quickly became aware of Jack Schraff, who owned a ranch near Camp Scott. At his house, black duct tape was found, an identical rope that was used to bind two of the girls. But Schraff claimed that his home had been broken into prior to the triple murder. While he was aware that some items had been stolen, he couldn't point out specifics to police. Jack Schraff was asked to take a polygraph by police, which he passed. And with a solid alibi, he was cleared as a suspect. It was at this point investigators came up with a new suspect, quickly moving on from Jack Schraff. Gene Leroy Hart was a local Cherokee man, raised just a kilometer and a half from Camp Scott, and he'd been at large for four years since 1973 when he escaped the Mays County Jail, for which he was imprisoned for four counts of burglary as well as kidnapping and raping two pregnant 
women. There was no direct evidence linking Hart to the crime, but lead detective Weaver went on record saying he believed Hart was 1000% guilty, but he didn't elaborate why he'd come to this conclusion. Several days after the murder, local hunters found a cave which seemed to be lived in. There they found women's glasses, as well as pages from the Tulsa newspaper, sections of which had been found in the flashlight that police found at the scene to hold the batteries in place from rattling, and photographs that Jean Leroy Hart had developed himself while working at a photo lab at the Granite Reformery. Perhaps the most chilling clue, though, was a note written on the wall. 77 6 17. The real killer was here. Bye bye, fools. One year passed since the events of June 12th and June 13th, 1977. Gene Hart was finally picked up by the police at the home of a Cherokee man named Pigeon. He was arrested on suspicion of the assaults and murders at Camp Scott. Searching Pigeon's home after their arrest, police found nothing. But, curiously, on a second search at a later date, police found items that a camp counselor claimed had gone missing before camp began. Pigeon claimed that those items were never there, meaning that the police had planted them. There was also suspicion that lead detective Weaver was already in possession of the photographs that Jean had developed at the prison, and that he had also planted those in the cave to be found by the hunters. Many family members and local residents believed Jean to be innocent and as a show of support raised funds to support him during his trial. A key piece of evidence in his trial was the long black hair, which was found on one of the victims. Although the hair matched Jean's hair, you couldn't ID a perpetrator in 1977 based on hair analysis alone, as this predated DNA testing. And the fingerprint left on the lens of the flashlight found at the scene, and the bloody footprint, did not match Jean Leroy Hart. A jury eventually acquitted Jean, but due to previous offenses and the escape from a state prison, he had a 300-year prison sentence already awaiting him. And no longer than two months later, after he was back in jail, Jean died of a heart attack. After Jean's trial, the case died. Police had no suspects, no plausible evidence or even circumstantial evidence to point the finger at anyone. They hit a dead end. Tragically, the case remains unsolved to this day. But do you want to know what the most chilling and saddening detail of this entire tragic story is? In April of 1977, two months before Camp Scott was about to start, a summer camp counselor at a group training session discovered that an unknown person had broken into her cabin and had gone through her personal belongings. The only thing missing, curiously enough, were all of her donuts, but in their place was a hastily scrawled note that would prove to be foreshadowing for the horrible events that would soon take place and shut the camp down forever. In the donut box, there were four or five leaves of a little notepad. 
The first few pages consisted entirely of the word kill, over and over, and then continued to say, We are on a mission to kill three girls. A fake body was also found hanging from a tree on the property. This incident and this note were disregarded, as the note also made mention of aliens. The whole thing was seen as a morbid prank, and they decided not to disclose what they misguidingly decided was a prank to parents of the campers for the upcoming summer sessions. This decision by Camp Scott management was a decision that would lead to the death of three young innocent Girl Scouts, leaving home for the first time, exploring and seeing the world outside of their suburban neighborhoods. Their morning light snuffed out forever. So Creep, did you enjoy today's episode? If you did, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. For each five-star review, I get one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. Tales by Cole is a weekly podcast and is released every Tuesday. If you don't want to miss a single episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to follow along on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at TalesByCole and Instagram at ToldByCole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound engineering and editing by Matt Black. And with that, I bid you adieu. Be safe, take care of one another, and don't forget to lock the door. <laughs>